0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's
1: Saturday. What does that mean, Robert? Well, it means it's time to open the vault. Looks like it's already open, so let's
0: get in there. Ooh, there's a lot of P in here. (laughs) There's also a lot of NP in here. Uh, Perhaps you can uh, explain this to everybody.
1: Smooth transition, Robert. Very smooth. I like it. Uh, This is the episode on the P versus NP problem, a classic, fascinating, vexing problem in logic and math and computer science. And uh, and in this episode, we tackle the question of what it actually means to solve a problem. This originally aired on April 12th, 2016, and we're bringing it back for you now. So we hope you enjoy our exploration of the P versus NP problem.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And today we're going to be taking a look at the issue in computer science. Uh, Funny enough, I'd say that's not one of the sciences we dip into very frequently on this podcast.
0: Yes, and I I mean, really, we should probably just remind everyone to stick with us. Trust us on this one. Uh Uh, Don't be scared off by the computer science thing. Don't be scared off by the P uh, versus NP thing. It's, it's, It's all going to make a type of sense at the end.
1: Hopefully. Uh, but I, I'm wondering if maybe we should dip into computer science more often because, uh, or at least wherever we can find a way to make the contents of it reasonably concrete, because mm-hmm. let's be honest, as we've discovered in researching this episode, it's very abstract, very difficult, and a lot of times hard to come up with ways of explaining that makes sense just, just talking about it without visual aids or uh, watching programs execute as an example.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of those topics that it's a swimming pool of a topic in which there is no gradual deepening from the kiddie area to the deep end. It's just Shallow, and at times it feels too shallow, and then you're immediately uh, out of your depth.
1: Yeah. But if you're thinking, "Uh, computer science, really, does that fit with the show? Hold on for a second because I Mm -hmm. I think it does. Um, Computer science to me is a fascinating subject, uh, and it's not just limited to how computers work. So, my advice is when you think about the idea of computer science, forget the computer sitting in front of you. That's not all it is. Computer science is really something more akin to the philosophy of logic, understanding the the underlying sorcery of how logic and math work in the universe we inhabit, and especially the science of how problems are
0: solved. And certainly when you start bringing math into the equation here as well, I mean, you're talking – we're talking about the essentially the very fabric of the universe. We're talking about e- either the fabric of the universe, either the way the universe works or this perfect creation that humans have come up with that – so accurately describes how the universe works, and and that is pretty mind blowing territory. Well, e-
1: either way you look at it, there is something mystical about uh about the math that we walk on every day that mm-hmm. you know that makes up the fabric and you the say logic. The math of the, beneath our feet. The math beneath our feet. You know, if you go with the the Max Tegmark idea of the mathematical universe, some people don't like this idea because they're like, oh, I don't understand what that means. But at least it's a very intriguing idea. Yeah. I think his idea is that. Uh, the underlying basis of all reality, not just as described by math, but is math, that the universe is a mathematical object. But we're going to get back to this idea of problem solving, because today we want to focus on algorithms and on uh, the inherent logic of problem solving in our universe with some attention to a special example of one really interesting, outstanding problem in computer science, and that's the P versus NP issue, uh, if you've never heard of this before, don't worry, we'll explain what the terms mean in, in a simplified manner. And uh, I at this point also do want to give a shout out to our listener, Jim in New Jersey, who's been encouraging me over email to tackle this issue for a while, despite all the challenges. And has also sent some really helpful, uh, really helpful guides and explainers on some stuff he he learned about this when he was in graduate school.
0: Yeah, indeed. And uh, and I think this is great too because this episode is coming on the heels of uh, first of all the the wicked problems episode uh, that came out a few weeks ago as well as the more recent Cargo Cults episode which uh, in which we discuss um outside context problems a little bit as well. So, it's hmm. it's perfectly fitting that we would discuss another problem.
1: Well, um, well, what does it mean inherently to solve a problem? If you get into the theory of problem solving, what 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 does this process look
0: like? Well, when it comes down just to the basics of it, and this also kind of gets into the whole wicked problems area of like what's what's missing when you don't have uh, you know everything you need to, to solve a problem for for a real problem you have to be able of course to, to define what the problem is a uh, lot of a lot of attempts fail right there yeah you've got to you 've got to be able to say this is the thing you know and then you uh, and then you have to be able to measure your success and check the solution so you essentially have to be able to say, "Hey, this is wrong because of x and then if you and then figure out what x is and see if the equation balances out um It sounds pretty simple, but like I said, as we discussed in wicked problems, that's uh, it it, it can be very difficult to do, especially in you know very complex social situations when you're dealing with with certainly some of the larger problems that we're going to talk about here. Mm -hmm. Or even if you want to go into the the simplest
1: level, well, I mean, depending on what you would Mm -hmm. call simple. Uh, In fact, what we're going to be getting into today is directly referred to as complexity theory. Uh, So maybe it's not so simple, but at least simple in terms of not involving. Uh, phenomena in the real world, but just math, just math and logic and and true versus untrue and uh, and algorithms. So I I think it's time to pull back the curtain a little bit and reveal some of the deep weirdness of the nature of algorithms and problem solving in our universe. So let's look at this P versus NP problem. This is uh, something that comes from two of the great minds of the 20th century, uh, Kurt Gödel and John von Neumann. And in 1956, Kurt Gödel, who's a mathematician and logician, wrote a letter to John von Neumann, which kicked off this quest to solve one of the biggest questions in computer science, the P versus NP issue. Uh, Now, who were these guys? Both were titans of the 20th century in terms of uh, math, logic, and computers.
0: Well, Gödel is probably most famous for uh, his uh, first incompleteness theorem. And this states that any adequate... um, axiomatizable theory, that means a theory that's based on self-evident but unprovable proofs, is incomplete or inconsistent.
1: Yeah, uh, Gödel's whole incompleteness theorem set he had a couple his incompleteness theorems essentially amount to the idea that any mathematical system that makes sense will have some statements that are true yet impossible to prove it's sort of the idea that you can't ever know everything about a self-consistent system
0: yeah and the uh, the, the implication here according to theoretical physicist and mathematician freeman dyson who is uh, is also quite a, a giant uh, in the field Uh, is that mathematics is inexhaustible, that no matter how many problems we solve, we'll inevitably encounter more unsolvable problems within the existing rules.
1: I take comfort in that measure of futility. Yeah. But there's also John von Neumann, the recipient of the letter. And von Neumann, I I don't know uh, what you've heard about him, but I'd say he's often considered one of the most intelligent people who ever lived, that we know about at least, uh, so maybe we call him a mathematician and a physicist, but he made contributions to numerous fields. He was a a modern Da Vinci kind of you know a polymath, uh, mm-hmm. and so, and that includes computer science. For example, the von Neumann architecture in the history of computer design, which is basically a, it's a way of controlling the interaction between uh, processing operations, the CPU, and the memory of a computer. And this letter in 1956 from Godel to von Neumann started this process of looking into the question of whether p does or does not equal np now like i said we're we're about to explain what all the terms here mean uh, but i do want to note at the outset of this explanation that you know on the show we, we always try to do our best to present our subjects accurately but then at the same time be understandable to the average person. And this this P versus NP issue in complexity theory is probably the most difficult and abstract subject I've ever tried to cover on a podcast. Uh, so we'll have to do our best to explain the issue and its implications without losing you in asphyxiating clouds of abstraction.
0: Uh yeah, I mean basically the the House of Works uh mission overall is to demystify uh, right. science and uh it topics like this can be a bit difficult because you don't want to through the explanation just mystify it even more for the average listener.
1: Exactly right. So this is necessarily going to involve a lot of simplified versions of principles we won't be able to go down uh, and explore all of the complex details behind these principles. But uh, we hope that you computer scientists and mathematicians out there will not be too scandalized or think we're doing violence to your subject. Uh, anyway, he- here we go. So we, we got to start with the concept of algorithms. What, what is an algorithm? Well, I'd say an algorithm is a self-contained list of instructions to solve a problem, You've got a goal, and then you make a step-by-step list of things to do that gets you to the goal. A common example within a computer program would be a subroutine designed to sort a list of things. That's an algorithm.
0: Yeah and uh, you know algorithms are something we encounter on a just on a daily basis especially online I mean Facebook Google both of these depend on ever changing algorithms to decide what you see and don't see uh on your feeds and on your search results Yeah
1: and I think that's a great example of how complex algorithms can get you've got the the simple sorting algorithm on one hand and then you've got the stuff that decides whether you only see political articles you agree with or whether you sometimes see stuff that's going to make you mad. right? So when you're designing algorithms in, in a computer science uh, arena, or really to solve any problem, but we're, we're mostly going to be talking about computer programs, you compare how much time it takes to solve a problem with an algorithm given the scope of a problem. So this is usually expressed in terms of uh, inputs versus time. So I want to give a quick example with, sorting like i said you say you're given a spreadsheet that includes a list of all the james bond movies that exist currently in a random order okay and you've got to write a computer program that sorts all of those lists of james bond movie titles into a list in the order they came out how would you do that now there are a lot of ways you actually could approach the problem and they don't all take the same amount of time some are much more efficient than others Uh, Here's one example. You could create an algorithm that goes like this. Step one, rearrange the entire list at random. Step two, check each movie in the list to see if it came out before the next movie in the list. If the answer is yes all the way down the line, then the list is sorted correctly and you're done. If not, Start over and rearrange it entirely randomly. Now, given enough time and a small enough data set, this algorithm will eventually finish by blind luck. It's just brute force burning through computer resources wastefully in order to eventually solve the problem by blind luck. But there are also much more efficient ways you could go about it. Uh, For example, you could go down the list comparing each movie to the next, and if the second movie came out before the first, you switch their order on the list and then go on like that, uh, and then you do that until the list is sorted. But some problems are inherently a lot harder than others, and there aren't any algorithmic shortcuts like that that we know about. We don't know of any easy way to solve them the only thing we know how to do is do that stupid brute force method where you just wastefully burn through computer resources until it's solved by time and force. Right. And in fact, I'd I'd like to make a comparison here in the, you know, the efficient algorithm versus brute force methods to what you might see in animals in the wild using intelligence to solve a problem. So like if you're hunting another animal, you could use a brute force method of just running after the animal until it is tired or until your muscles have allowed you to catch it and then killing it with the strength of your muscles. That's sort of the brute force method. Or you could set a trap or you could build a weapon. These are shortcuts that make the process of hunting a lot more efficient. Now, here's where we get to our main terms in this discussion, P and NP. P is going to stand for polynomial time, and NP stands for non-deterministic polynomial time. You don't really need to remember that for the purpose of this discussion because we're going to make it a lot simpler.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems with the topic is that like just – the word – just, just the, the, the basic idea here of P and NP, They're, it's so dry and unrelatable, uh, but allow us to explain. Yeah, OK.
1: So the, the real difference has to do with um, processes of solving problems on a deterministic Turing machine, uh, which is equivalent to the kind of computer you'd be using right now, You know, in, any device you have, versus a hypothetical non-deterministic machine. Uh, which in theory you could say works by magically guessing the answers to questions and then just checking to see if the magic guess is correct. But like we said, uh, we don't want to get too bogged down in all those details. So here's the simplified version. P-, P is a set of all problems that can be solved by an algorithm quickly or easily or efficiently. Right. This is the easy, the list of easy problems in computer science. NP, on the other hand, stands for answers that can be easily checked by a computer once you have them, but they can't necessarily be solved easily.
0: Yeah, so it's difficult to place this in a non-mathematical context. But one way I like to think about this is in terms of written reviews for for albums, for you know, for uh, for musical albums. Oh yeah, um, because a good a good review, a good music review. Is is difficult to write uh, and, and hard to find and hard to find. Yeah, like in my own experience, you often find. I mean, I, I write many reviews of, stu- of stuff from time to time, and it, that alone is challenging enough for me. But uh, but yeah, when you even when you're looking at the major publications. Uh yeah it's hard to find one that feels just right it's uh the, the average reader though can can swiftly judge to what extent they agree with the author, obviously to what extent the author is just blowing smoke we've all read those music reviews where you get the sense that the the author is really using the music as an excuse to sort of write his or her own poetry uh <laughs> there on the page <laughs> as opposed so to good. actually just des- describing what the music is like but the but the reader knows so the reader can. Can uh, can look at the material and you either believe them or you don't. Either right. you buy into their opinion or you don't.
1: Yeah, you. So you could. You don't have the algorithm internally to efficiently write this piece of writing yourself, but you know it when you see it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like pornography in that sense, yeah. right? You might not be able to define clearly the difference between art and pornography, but you know it when you see it. Exactly. Once yeah. you have that answer certificate, there you can check. And by golly. It checks out,
0: <laughs> and I like that because it also gives a whole uh, new meaning to the p and to the n p and uh
1: now so th- there are a couple of other terms that matter uh th- there there's n p hard. And this means that are uh, problems that are as hard as any other NP problem, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then there's also NP-complete, which is a big uh, issue in this arena. And this is problems that are NP and NP-hard. So you uh, you can check the answer once you have it in in a reasonable amount of time, and they're NP-hard. Now, the interesting thing about NP-complete problems is that it has been proved in the literature that if you have an algorithm that can efficiently solve one NP-complete problem, it can be transposed to solve all of them. These problems reduce to each other. So if you uh, if you can solve one NP-complete problem in a reasonable amount of time,
0: you have found the master key, uh, and this and the universe kind of shrinks. <laughs> in yeah, in response to this.
1: Uh, so a classic example of an NP problem is the prime factorization problem that we use in encryption on the internet. Again, we don't want you to get lost too much here. So uh, here's the simple version with smaller numbers than usual. Let's say I, I just throw out a random number and let's say it's a number of I, – I don't know. What's a good one? Skulls in a pile. Okay. So let's say I give you a number. Let's say there are 721,421 skulls in a pile. That's a lot of skulls. It is. Now, I tell you this number is the product of two prime numbers of skulls in a pile, but I don't tell you what they are. Now, how could you figure out what those two prime numbers of skulls in a pile are? For a computer with numbers this small, this <laughs> mm-hmm. wouldn't be all that big a deal. But we're we're going to have to extrapolate to much bigger numbers. Uh, but for you, this would be really annoying to figure out, right? Oh, yes. Because there's no simple, efficient way to do it. You'd pretty much have to get out a huge list of all the prime numbers between 0 and 721,421 and start trying multiplying them together to see if they give you the right answer.
0: Yeah, and in this situation, I imagine it's like the opening scenes of Terminator, and I'm I'm probably already pretty distracted by the the pyramids of bone and the the hunter killer robot. The hunter killer's yeah. exactly. What am I, and, how am I how am I going to have time for all this prime number nonsense?
1: Now since we've solved P equals NP at this point, they don't have rubber skin anymore. They figured out how to <laughs> how, how to get through the problem to make the bioorg suits. So yeah, you you're in a real rush here. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to the problem. It, it, yeah, there's just no fast, simple, easy way to solve this. And if you use numbers large enough, this type of problem is excruciatingly slow, even for computers to conquer by brute force. But let's say I told you the two prime numbers are 757 and 953. Piles uh, skulls in a pile. It would be trivially easy for you to check and see if that's the correct solution. You just have to multiply them and see if you get the right answer. And that takes almost no time at all. And in right. fact, I'd really only need to tell you one of the numbers because you already know what they're supposed to multiply to. So you could just divide that by the one number. So here's an example. This is a problem that if you're going to try to solve it starting with no information, it's just going to take you ages. It's going to be impossible. Mm-hmm. But if you already know a selected uh, answer to test, you can check and see if that answer is right.
0: Yeah, I mean, this brings to mind, uh, it's a bit like trying to crack a four-number code on a simple combination lock, right? Uh, and I'm talking about a human doing this, not a computer. Uh, so it would take me as a human quite a while to test out all 10,000 possible solutions, but no time at all to check a solution that someone else had provided me. So, you know, I'd be there all day just putting in each one of those 10,000 solutions, but yeah. but I can easily put in, uh, you know, uh, 3366 and see if that is correct.
1: You found a really interesting uh, request for help on this subject, didn't you?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. There was, um, because I I I wanted to check to make sure that my math was right on how many possible combinations. I was pretty sure it was the 10 by 10 by 10 Uh by 10 thing. Uh, But I I did one of those uh, searches to just see people asking math questions online. And I found one where um, this user... Apparently had a combination lock, or it, maybe it was a, like a a, a contractor's uh, box, you know, yeah. like at a house where you like have a real estate agent. Yeah, and she said it was like a thirty dollar box, so she didn't want to just have it, you know, cut into uh, and ruin it in order to get the the keys out. Mm-hmm. She wanted to, but she didn't know what the combo was, so she wanted to to just enter all the possible combinations to get it. And here's the here's the caveat, though: she knows that no number was used uh, uh, more than once. Okay, and that cut it down significantly. Yeah, d- um,
1: just d- just more than five thousand. Yeah, just more. It than was like five
0: thousand forty or something. Yeah, and and the um, the person who supplied the answer on this forum, they included a list of all of them for <laughs> her convenience. So, um, I, I and I don't know how that came out. I wonder if she then took that list and just painstakingly uh, <laughs> spent the time right. to try each one out, or if she decided, you know, actually. That – inputting all those numbers is not worth the $30 that I would save by keeping the box intact.
1: That sounds like a fun Saturday, you know, on on the porch in front of the box with a case of beer. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully it's nice weather. But anyway, so yeah, this is problems that can potentially be brutally hard to solve, but they're easy to check once you have a certificate of the answer. Another classic and often cited example of an NP-complete problem is uh, the
0: the traveling salesman problem. Now, I think some this is ver- exciting because now we have something with more of an anthropomorphic name. Right? It seems yeah. to imply a scenario. It's like the Infinity Hotel. Well,
1: I want to change it up, and I want to okay. call I want to call this the uh, nationwide infection problem. Okay. So imagine that you are the vanguard of an alien species that has come to Earth, and you want to uh, land in a country, say the United States, mm-hmm. and in infect at least one person in every township and municipality in this country with one of your larvae. Okay, But you've got limited time to do it, okay? You know, no dilly-dallying around. So what you're looking for is a route that you can plan out on your alien equivalent of Google Maps uh, directions or, or, you know, your Apple directions device that will tell you how to go to every single city and township in the country only one time each in the shortest route possible. Okay, That's not easy. If you just had four or five cities, this wouldn't be such a big deal for a computer to Mm -hmm. figure out. Once you start adding hundreds or thousands of cities, how is it going to figure this out? The only way we know of is back to brute force. It could try one method. So, well, you go to city A and then city B and then city C and then D and go all the way around the country and see how long that takes. And then it could try again with first city B and then A and then the same from there. And then so you end up getting these exponentially multiplying combinations. There, it is just going to take massive amounts of time and computing power to figure out what is actually the shortest trip. Now, you might already see an issue with including this problem within NP. And I actually read an interesting blog post by uh, somebody writing for, uh, for IBM about how – under certain conditions, this problem actually isn't in P, depending on how you define what you're checking for. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're just looking to check that a given route is a correct solution, it visits every city only once, uh, then it is easy to check. You can check that very quickly.
0: All right. This comes down to accurately
1: defining the problem, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, if you're looking to check that it visits every city only once under a certain mileage, that's also easy to check. You can just see that it visited every city once and see how long it took. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking to verify whether a solution is in fact the shortest of all possible routes, that's not easy to check ah. because you'd still have you'd essentially have to do the entire brute force method that way and compare
0: it to every other possibility. All possible <laughs> routes have to be have to be considered.
1: So yeah. if if that's what you're going for, it's not hard to solve, easy to check, it's mm-hmm. hard to solve and hard to check. Okay. But here's the big problem with uh, with the P versus NP issue. We know that P problems are a subset of NP problems. But what if the subset is actually the same as the set? Meaning what if all NP problems are actually P problems? Uh, meaning what if all problems where we can check the answer are actually problems where we can solve them efficiently. We just haven't figured
0: out how to solve them efficiently yet. Okay. Or we haven't developed the uh, the machines that can do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So is that possible? And that's actually probably the single biggest open question in computer science today. Is P equal or not equal to NP? Are they or are they not equivalent sets?
0: Hmm. Now, the obvious answer is no, Right that just right. seems intuitive that seems that that seems to be the answer that that feels most in keeping with our our understanding of like the limits of human ability the limits of human knowledge and just sort of the, the fabric of our universe
1: yeah and so most computer scientists and mathematicians i think agree that the more likely answer to this unsolved question is that P does not equal NP. I found one poll that was taken. It was more than 10 years ago. I don't know if things have changed much since then. But in 2002, the University of Maryland computer scientist William I. gassark did a poll of colleagues in complexity theory, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he found the results. And so he found out, out of this poll of colleagues, 61 of his colleagues thought that P did not equal NP. Nine thought that P did equal NP. And some of those that said that said they – they said that basically just to be contrarian or to (laughs) continue encouraging people to research the possibility. right? Uh, And then several other colleagues either offered no opinion or offered uh, sort of uh, complex answers that weren't yes or no. Okay, (laughs) But so you can obviously see that the opinion that P does equal NP or the prediction that that will be what's eventually proved – is uh, the minority. It's not what we would tend to think is the more likely possibility. Okay. Yeah, it's the, the more outsider uh, uh, consideration here. So it, let's assume for a second that that is the case, that one day some amazing mathematician or computer scientist, somebody comes along and they figure out a way to prove that P does not equal NP. Pro- proofs like this happen in, uh, in math and computer science all the time, you might be wondering, how could that be proved? But people figure out ways to demonstrate mm-hmm. uh, logically that something is true like this. So let's say it's demonstrated that P does not equal NP. What are the implications? Well, mostly I'd say not much changes. This is sort of the obvious conclusion. It's the one that wouldn't surprise us. In other words, all of our brute force problems remain brute force problems, but uh, But if this is the case, it would still be useful to know. It would be useful to have a proof. But people
0: wouldn't start floating into the sky. The great old ones wouldn't come back. It would just (laughs) be business as usual for most people.
1: Yeah. So uh, we'd have a proof so people could stop trying to solve it. And we'd be able to use the fact that P is not equal to NP as an assumption uh, for other work in mathematics and computer science. So we'd just move on with our lives, basically. Essentially. But here's where things get interesting. What would the
0: implications be if P does equal NP? Well, right off the top of my head, of course, what comes to mind is the um, the, the use of encryption that we've already talked about. Like that's really like our, the, our most everyday uh, interaction with uh, with the idea of of, of uh, P and NP.
1: Yeah, I mean, why is it not easy for me to get into those photos you have on your phone, whatever they are? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because it's because we use the, these encryption methods. And almost all current encryption methods would be subject to; uh, they, they just depend on the fact that you don't have, you know, tons of supercomputers and time to sit around trying to brute force crack into people's junk. Right. But if you were able to reduce those problems to uh, to essentially easily solvable problems, problems that could be solved in regular polynomial time, the P class then suddenly yeah bye bye encryption essentially i mean we can't know for sure exactly how big a deal this uh this would be in terms of applied sciences and technology but the likely implication uh seems to be that any job currently hindered by the limits of brute force computation would be revolutionized so yeah there's the there's the prime factorization issue that that feeds into encryption and the informal way of summing this up is that, you know, if if, if our present methods of encryption and data security are like a, uh, a, like a plastic diary lock on our information, every hacker on earth might have access to a pair of 14-inch bolt cutters if okay. P equals NP. On the other hand, and, and this would be a positive, it could also mean that research projects that rely on brute force computation – could also potentially see huge leaps forward uh, for example one one that I saw I've seen mentioned and I've read about before is protein folding simulation hmm. have you ever read about this
0: uh yeah a little bit um I, I think I attended um a discussion on um, on the topic a few years back.
1: Yeah. So uh, this research, it involves going through permutations of, of different ways of folding proteins in a computer simulation. Mm-hmm. And this research could help cure diseases and treat medical conditions if we learn the right things about the behavior of how protein molecules fold up on one another and behave in the body. But simulating all of these folding permutations is a brute force computing project. So uh, if this actually reduced to a P problem, we might be able to hasten research that saves lives, maybe cure cancer. Who knows?
0: Okay, so we're already we're looking at a world where maybe we have to go back to using just normal mail. (laughs) <laughs> Instead of email. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe we cure cancer. Yeah. Okay. Or, or uh, if
1: people – I mean digital security maybe could still be uh, a thing if people just come up with another method. We, just our current methods would, mm-hmm. would possibly become obsolete.
0: Yeah, and the, the new method will be a sealed envelope under your bed. Right. Or a chest buried in your backyard. Yeah. That's it, where you'll have to keep all your be, nudie it, pictures.
1: You'd up. have to physically meet up with everybody <laughs> you trade information with and agree on a password in person.
0: You know, that would be interesting, uh, like trying to imagine a a digital uh, civilization that suddenly has to become a non-digital uh, civilization, but wants to keep everything uh, operating more or less as it did when it was digital. You know, like they still want to use Tinder. Uh but they can no longer use a true digital version of it. What does that even consist of?
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, But, of course, the the changes wouldn't just be in applied sciences and technology. One of the interesting things about this is multiple experts have commented that if we live in a P equals NP universe – we have been sorely mistaken about what reality is like. If, if this is the universe we inhabit, in fact, it is quite different than we thought. And one one thing I want to quote is by Scott Aronson who offers this as, quote, a, a, phys, a philosophical argument against P equals NP. And he says, quote, If P equals NP, then the world would be a profoundly different place than we usually assume it to be. There would be no special value for creative leaps, no fundamental gap between solving a problem and recognizing the solution once it's found. Everyone who could appreciate a symphony would be Mozart. Everyone who could follow a step-by-step argument would be Gauss everyone who could recognize a good investment strategy would be Warren Buffett. It's possible to put the point in Darwinian terms. If this is the sort of universe we inhabited, why wouldn't we already have evolved to take advantage of it? Hmm. That's a really interesting point, uh, but at the same time, so he's framing it in terms of this is one among a list of arguments he gives that p probably does not
0: equal. Yeah, I was fixing to say. He seems to be this seems to be very much an argument uh, uh, in favor of of their of there being no uh, equality here.
1: Right, but you could also look at look at it as an interesting comment on how different the world would be from how we assume it is if this were in fact the case. And it's interesting to note that we shouldn't assume that just because it doesn't feel like we live in a P equals NP world, that P equals NP is necessarily false. Our, our intuitions about what's possible in the math and problem-solving space have turned out to be very wrong in the past. And sometimes long standing problems in math and computer science are solved by, uh, so they're solved or proved in ways that just seem extremely peculiar, yet you can't deny the result.
0: I can't help but circle back around to um, the earlier opinion that we mentioned that was uh, attributed to Freeman Dyson, that mathematics is inexhaustible. If P equals NP, then the universe – is the universe really inexhaustible?
1: Huh. Yeah.
0: And and if P equals NP, does that mean that there is in a sense a universal algorithm out there? Uh, does it mean there, there is a theory of everything within our mathematical universe, as, as Ma- Max Tegmark argues in his in mathematical universe theory that we mentioned earlier? Because uh, Tegmark even goes so far as to predict that a mathematical proof for a theory of everything could eventually fit on a T-shirt. Well, I would kind of like to. Is that the kind of universe? Yeah, we Live in. I,
1: I mean, that's an interesting thought on its own. And, and Tegmark's theories, I, I, as I think I said earlier in this episode, I, I find them very interesting, even if I'm not qualified enough to know whether they're really <laughs> yeah. rigorous physics. I, I read that book, uh, Our, Our Mathematical Universe, and mm-hmm. I, I found it amazingly stimulating. You know, he talks about different levels of, uh, of multiverse realities mm-hmm. and and what they each imply. Uh, and he he gives a very at least to the layperson a very reasonable sounding explanation of how these are natural conclusions from what we know about physics right but i do want to use what you said as a sort of jumping off point to take a broader view about the algorithmic nature of reality but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from the sponsor of this episode
0: Hey, everybody. In this day and age, you know the importance of having a professional-looking website. That's how you represent yourself in the world at
1: large. Come on. You can't just have a GeoCities page hanging out there with all your dancing baby gifts. It's, it's 2016. Come on.
0: That's right. That's not going to fly. The problem is, of course, most of us, you know, we don't have the coding expertise to go out and make one of these things. We don't have the money to throw at some sort of big, fancy, big bigwig uh, uh, website designer. So what do you do? You sign up for Squarespace is what you do, because Squarespace, they have the easy-to-use tools, the interface that you need, all everything at your disposal to knock out that professional-looking website.
1: Yeah, it'll look great, and it won't be scary. They, they take away all of the, the gears and the creepiness of, of designing a website. They make it super intuitive, super easy. You have what you need, and you can make it yourself in no time. And, hey, if you want to use our offer code, you can go to squarespace.com and enter in mind blown to get 20% off your first— First purchase and a free domain when you sign up today. So go check out squarespace.com. Special code mind blown and get started making that awesome website. So whatever the solution to P equals NP turns out to be, I think one thing that's very interesting about it is just the idea that this problem in computer science. Runs under the skin of everything that exists. It, you know, it's it's not something that people just made up. Right. Th- this is talking about a fact about the universe that would be a fact about the universe whether we were here to discuss it or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of. You know, it's difficult, kind of, to get to get outside of the the, the mere uh, language of the situation when we're talking about problem solving because we can't help but think about a human mind trying to solve a problem. Yeah, but in a sense. Problem solving takes place not only at the human level; it takes place at at, uh, at 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 the animal level, as you know, as this particular entity is trying to navigate a world of fixed and moving objects, uh, generally to acquire some goal, to acquire food or or a mate. Uh, I mean, you could even you could probably even extrapolate it as far to say to say that that uh, an object obeying gravity is kind of engaging in a a sort of non-mental (laughs) problem-solving. Oh, yeah, in a way. In a a way, in a a limited way. Uh, I I guess what I'm just trying to to drive home here is that when we continue to talk about problem-solving here – it's like try not to think about it as much uh, within in the human realm. Yeah. Um, because it is we're about to see it gets well outside of it.
1: R- remove the consciousness from it. Yeah. Inj- retain only the teleology. Exactly. Uh, the, the, there are there are steps toward a purpose, but you don't have to know what the purpose is and you don't even have to realize you're taking steps.
0: Right. Now, a great example of this is the slime mold. Yeah. So slime molds don't have brains. They consist of a single cell containing millions of nuclei, and they form a network of protoplasmic tubes to creep toward a food source along the shortest path. That's uh, essential here. It sends out limbs to uh, find food, and when it finds a a food source, it spreads over it, secretes digestive enzymes, and has its meal. Uh, When it doesn't, yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. It's it's essentially the blob, right? Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't find food, then the limb, you know, dies and retreats back. So in this, it creates a network for transporting nutrients and chemicals uh, for intercellular communication. And the, the method allows them to perform such feats, and this is generally in in, this is in lab environments, uh, such feats as solving a maze, like a straight-up maze that you would put a mouse in, a, as well as uh, when presented with a miniaturized Earth environment, uh, they can they can recreate some of the great trade routes um, of the world, uh, some of the great uh, highway systems. Huh. Uh, they can model cancer growth. Um, l- let me go into a little detail about the, the Silk Road thing, uh, and this is... This gets into exactly what we were talking earlier about a, an algorithm attempting to to plot a course right, uh-huh. and, and having to hit all those stops, the salesman uh, problem that we were discussing earlier. All right. OK. So back in uh, 2012, computer scientist uh, Andre uh, Adamansky from the University of the West of England, he took a globe, OK? And you can do this at home probably, I guess, if you have access to uh, the materials. He took a globe. And he coated it with agar, all right? This, of course, is the stuff in a Petri dish that, uh, you know, bacteria grows on. Yeah, eat me. Yeah. Uh, And then he, um, and then uh, what he did is he removed uh, uh, the uh, agar from the areas over the ocean. So it's just covering the continents and the the land at this point. Okay. And then he placed oat flakes at the locations of 24 different major cities on the globe. So that's a food source, okay? Right. Then he introduced the slime mold. All right, and he did this 30 different times, and each time the slime mold conquered the world in a slightly different way, establishing uh, trade routes uh, between the various oat cities. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it's uh, – the pic- there are pictures out there of this. It's pretty remarkable because uh, it – and maybe a little bit scary because you see it, these tendrils just spreading out all over the world. Right, it managed to to plan out uh, engineering projects that, of course, humans can only dream of right now, like transatlantic bridges. Obviously, we're not going to do that. Uh, it wasn't a, I, didn't, I don't think it was ever able to really conquer the Pacific. The Pacific was just too, too, uh, too great of a distance without uh, auger there for it to grow on. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it also managed to recreate the Silk Road. Uh, as well as uh, the modern Asian highway network, uh, which consists of about uh, 87,000 miles of roads running between 32 countries. Uh, So it it, it provides a a great example of uh, not a problem-solving intelligence, but an algorithmic problem-solving organic system. Of
1: course, this, I do think, raises the specter of the question, uh, how do you tell the difference between an algorithm and intelligence?
0: Yeah. Unless
1: you want to be anthropomorphic and say, well, intelligence is consciousness and yeah. the ability to love. and
0: <laughs> Yeah, and then we start gazing down that abyss, right? Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we get back to, to some of the problems we've discussed um, in relation to AI uh, in the past. How do you know when you created it if you can't really say what it is? It, it becomes this, this problem. We can't even define the problem. So how can we – come up with the solution or check the solution
1: yeah and it's funny that we were talking earlier about uh about uh sets that sort of recursively consume one another is Mm -hmm. one set within another set but then the first set is uh the second set's also in the first set now we just gave an example of how nature can be like an algorithm but you can also say that plenty of algorithms in computer science have been essentially derived from nature
0: yeah Um, and there's a great example of this with ants so ant colonies we've discussed ants here on the podcast before and I'm sure we'll cover them again in the future you know they're complex societies and we see plenty of examples in which colonies accomplish complex tasks that exceed the individual capacities of a single ant of course so they work together and they're able to solve problems and this is
1: mound mind
0: yeah exactly it's the 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 emergent uh, intelligence of the group the swarm intelligence um This is a particular note to computer programming as though as we see how their self-organizing capacities and distributed organization enable them to solve difficult optimization and distributed control problems. Mm. Okay. So back in 2012, a Stanford study uh, looked at how harvester ants determine how many foragers to send out
1: for food, of course. So they're sending out a raiding party. Right.
0: Uh, Which is, you know, more complex than – than you might think uh-huh. uh, because you get down into the basic probably you know how many do you send out uh, you know what's the, the wait time yeah uh, and then they compared this to the manner in which a search engine brings back search results so specifically Ooh. yeah specifically we're talking about transmission control protocol or TCP mm-hmm. which if you're like me that's mostly something that you run into when you have to adjust something on your your internet uh, situation at home right, right uh, am I in the proxy uh, yeah yeah, yeah. But in, anyway, it's a it's essentially an algorithm that manages data congestion on the internet. Uh-huh. So they uh, com- they compared the two, right? Uh, they combined the two and they created the anternet. <laughs> this is so that's that's internet except instead of int, you have an ant. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a TCP influenced algorithm that accurately matched ant behavior in the experiment. So it's an example of ants reaching the same place as our computer programming. Um, so, so basically they, they created a TCP program that accurately predicted how the ants were going to act.
1: Yeah, we've definitely talked uh, on the other podcasts that I do with Jonathan Strickland Mm -hmm. and Lauren Vogelbaum forward thinking we talk about biomimetic robotics a lot. Yeah. About ways that uh, robots can be inspired by the ways that animals move, especially in mobile robotics. You know, how do you get a swarm of things to behave as a group correctly? And I'd imagine that this would be a very good example of how to control them.
0: Yeah, you see swarm uh, organisms used in various AI programs. I believe here uh, uh, Georgia Tech uh, in Atlanta, they've used uh, bees a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, more recently, a 2014 study from Zurich's Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences explored the possibility of using ant algorithms to search for new composite agents in the development of new pharmaceuticals. And mm-hmm. this gets uh, down to the whole uh, situation we are discussing earlier about do you, do you take a brute uh, strength approach? to finding out uh, which connections amid all these possible connections are the ideal ones to then test and explore. Um, so they've looked into the possibility of using an ant-based algorithm to find those, to, to essentially, you know, magically guess those uh, the, those uh, those uh, composite agents that, uh, that deserve further examination.
1: Well, you know, one thing these examples in nature make me think about is an idea that really intrigues me. And that's the question of whether evolution by natural selection can itself be best interpreted as an algorithm hmm. because think about it it's it's kind of an iterate and test style algorithmic procedure L- let me give you a list of steps step one randomly introduce a change so that would yeah. be like a mutant allele into the genome you vary one gene from the existing model so you random random that, that's step one and then step two Test against the baseline performance rate of the standard allele in the environment, or you know uh, the individual steps here would be attempt to copy
0: mm-hmm.
1: if copying succeeds, go to one or return to the first step. If copying fails, return void that, uh, It's almost like a computer program
0: yeah i think I think there's a very strong case to be made there I mean uh, uh, earlier i I made the I, I said that gravity an object obeying gravity and is is in a way kind of obeying. A certain algorithm. It's kind of problem solving. So this, I think, this fits the bill as well.
1: Yeah, and I, I certainly didn't come up with this idea. I know I've read about it in uh, the philosopher Daniel Dennett, who uh, advocated this point of view in his 1996 book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, was which was a lot about the implications of evolution beyond just explaining the diversity of species on Earth. Right. Uh, evolution is a sort of principle that extends even beyond bi- uh, biology, but this universal driving force that uh, that drives design through the design space in, in the way he would explain it. But uh, so, uh, of course, not everybody agrees with that interpretation, thinks that uh, an algorithm is a good way of thinking about evolution. But I- I've got another follow-up question that's kind of interesting to me. If evolution is an algorithm, is it an efficient algorithm or a brute force algorithm Ooh,
0: now that's a good question.
1: I mean, it seems to me kind of like it would be a brute force algorithm, right? Because you're you're trying any number it's you know just brute force combinatrix. you're trying something, uh, here's a pair of genes, here's an allele, does that work? No, okay, throw it in the trash.
0: Yeah. It seems it. very wasteful. Yeah, here's a lizard with uh, spots, here's one without spots, which one gets eaten, which one continues. That sounds like kind of a brute Brute force. You're just throwing out all the pro- possible prototypes right. and, uh, and seeing what – then you see what happens.
1: And I think this would actually be one way of framing the difference between the standard scientific materialist view of evolution, which mm-hmm. I think would probably be – is is best I can tell, I bet that would be the brute force method. And then some types of believers in intelligent design, right? So if you are somebody who believes – um, you, you accept the evidence for evolution and common descent, but you simply believe the process was guided in one way or another. You think aliens or a god or some other you know, powerful supernatural or, or otherworldly technological force interfered with evolution, maybe reached in to cause specific mutations to the terrestrial gene space at key points. That sounds like that would be uh, optimizing the algorithm, right? Like somebody's yeah. introducing artificial efficiency. Yeah, But then again, I'd I'd be interested in hearing from the evolutionary biologists and geneticists out there in the audience on this one. Like if you accept the idea that uh, natural selection is like an algorithm, is it a brute force algorithm unless you go to the intelligent design hypothesis? Or are there other ways of thinking uh, of the algorithm as in some way optimized by material
0: circumstances? Huh. And since you did mention God or the gods here – Would the god uh, in this uh, scenario, okay, so this is a force coming from outside our universe, then perhaps in this scenario, our world is uh, is a P does not equal NP universe, (laughs) but the realm of the gods is a P equals NP universe.
1: Huh. Well, I mean— that's an interesting way of putting it. Because uh, like, they,
0: they can they can uh, knock it out, right? They're gods. They're basically limitless.
1: Well, it's infinite possibility. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the whole – the realm of mathematics and logic is in many ways – it often signals to me this sort of underlying hint of infinite possibilities. But also infinite constraints. Yeah. at the same time. Uh mathematics is both infinite power and ultimate helplessness. You know, it it's the power to accomplish anything and the inevitability of being thwarted and destroyed by processes beyond your control. Right. Uh it it, it just sort of makes everything good and bad possible.
0: Well, it sounds like you're talking about the gods again. Yeah, yeah it could be. Go. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. P NP P versus NP P equals NP P does not equal NP. Hopefully, uh, at at this point, you have if you, if you didn't know what any of this stuff was about uh, beforehand, you have a, a much better grasp on the yeah. idea. You can at least realize why it is a topic that people continue to discuss and even argue about. But
1: if you want to get into the actual details uh, of of it, there are plenty of good resources out there on the internet. If you are a math and computer science and logic inclined person who has a good abstract mind for that kind of thing. But either way I do want to remind you to always think about the algorithmic nature of the the ground beneath your feet and the laws that govern the way uh the way everything around you works the the logic of reality uh is, is there a problem solving process inherent to everything that's going on around you all the time I don't know it's a, it's a strange specter of an idea to keep behind your head at all times
0: Yeah again like when a when a like a walnut falls out of a tree like, is there a certain – there's an there's an algorithm at play, right, as to how exactly it's going to make it to the ground, which branches it's going to hit.
1: I guess that depends on your perspective. Is yeah. is there is there a goal there? Is something happening hmm. or did something just happen? <laughs> I don't know,
0: man. That's pretty far out. Pretty far out. Well, let's
1: not get too much into weird stoner territory here at yeah. the end. Uh, I do want to say r- right here at the end, uh, if you are somebody who's involved in mathematics or computer science and uh, – and you would like to write in to tell us about uh one of the one of the more detailed or complex aspects of this that we didn't get to like we said we we gave you the very simple version please write in and we'd love to share your thoughts with the rest of you guys
0: yeah and i'd also love to hear from anyone uh you know who's read some uh some science fiction that definitely weighs in on this um you know i was trying to think of specific examples from uh E and M Banks culture books uh, because the, they have these minds, these uh, AIs that are incredibly powerful. But for the life of me, I can't remember uh, exactly where they uh, they weigh in uh, in terms <laughs> of the, or where, where indeed uh, Banks's universe there weighs in on the uh, on the the P and P spectrum. Okay. Uh, hey, but in the meantime, uh, you want to check out this and uh, other uh, pieces of content, head on over to stufftobuildyourmind.com That's the Mothership. That's where we have all the articles. That's where we have blog posts. We have links out to social media. We have some videos. Uh, be sure to go there. Uh, hey, and if you listen to us on, what, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Spotify. Google Play, wh- wh- however you get your podcasts, um, if it's possible to do so, leave us a nice review there. Give us a little boost in the algorithm that ultimately uh, determines our fate. You can tweak that uh, that algorithm. You can reach out as, a, as an outside force, uh, like a god, and shift things in our favor. So we invite you to do so. And
1: as always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, and we really hope you do, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.